Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Uh, welcome to another Volume 2. Uh, I wonder eventually when we're going to start having to call things Volume 3, Volume <laughs> 4. Oh boy. Uh, but this is something that we do um, the first episode of every month. We always we're going to be always going back to an artist that we've already done an episode on, and if you guys have listened to very many of our episodes, then you will know just from the title of this episode how excited I am <laughs> about this one. Yeah. Uh, not only are we talking about my all-time favorite band, but uh, we're also talking about using a format that we tried previously in our cheap trick episode. And I felt like it worked very well about looking at some live music, which is something that I definitely want to do more often on the show, especially for the great live groups. Um, Being able to talk about their live show is such a unique way of presenting um, the music and the band. So I'm really, really excited about it. Um, If this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad that you're here, but something that we're going to advise is that because this is a volume two, we're going to recommend that you go check out our volume one of this episode, which is the artist Queen. Um, Queen was actually the very first episode we ever made. So if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of our episode list, you'll find our first episode on Queen. It's actually still one of our most popular episodes we've ever done, which makes me very happy. Um, and then this will be the, the perfect episode to kind of jump in right on after that. So, um, if you like what you're hearing overall, please hit the subscribe button. Let us know, um, in the comments, what artists you would like for us to tackle in the future or what artists you would like for us to do a volume two of not just, uh, artists we haven't done yet, but people that you would like us to return to. And, um, yeah, that's, it's a great way to get in contact with us. We love hearing from you guys. We love hearing your suggestions. We've got suggestions coming in the near future. I know I keep saying that, but very soon I'm going to say that, and it's actually going to have some substance to it. <laughs> but I am officially playing through for the rest of the year, and wow. that's a really cool yeah. place to be in. Whether or not, unless something like seismic happens in the music industry, like, you know, if like Robert Plant were to die, God forbid, yeah, in the next couple weeks, and obviously we would do a Led Zeppelin episode and kind of put whatever else we had on hold. But unless something like that happens, then 
the the course is set for the rest of the year. And um, yeah, so just keep letting us know what artists you would like us to cover because that'll go into the next year. And one of the best ways to be able to communicate with us is on our social media pages on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, it's also a great place to just get in on some of the discussion, to get announcements, know when new episodes are dropping, um, Patreon updates. That's kind of where you'll see all that. So go check us out there. Um, also, we have a YouTube channel. We don't put cover songs on there anymore, but we are going to start putting episodes on there. So if, if you've got... Uh, YouTube Premium, where you're able to just listen without having to have the screen open, which has changed my life once I've <laughs> discovered that. Um, that's another place that you can listen to our episodes. And who knows, in the future we might put some little bonus things on there as well. And um, if you want to become a patron, there's a link for that in the description of the episode. Uh, we have three and five dollar tiers, and for those of you that join the three dollar tier, you're going to get to listen to episodes early. So, for those of you that are listening to this episode early, welcome. We thank you for being a patron. And if you join the five dollar tier, you'll not only get access to early episodes, but you're also going to get access to our special after hours segment, which I've had a lot of fun doing. Ooh, it's it's. It would be unfair to say that it's my favorite segment, but it's it's a nice like post episode discussion. It's like yeah. the final final thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, and we talk about stuff that isn't even relevant to the episode while also touching on things that we wish we would have said in some cases. It's a so rabbit it's trail. Like, it's, but it's a yeah, good trail. I think I think our <laughs> conversation during uh after hours is kind of the most honest personally yeah it's unfiltered it's unfiltered and and i've learned a lot from those and i think that anybody who listens to them uh on patreon would too yeah like last uh last episode we talked about the um the whether dancers are a good addition to oh, live music yeah oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh. And we talked about how similar jazz, uh, jazz fusion, and prog metal were. Oh, that, mm-hmm. that was no surprise. Yeah. So you never know what you're going to get if you're if you're a nerd and you <laughs> like rabbit trailing on that kind of stuff. You and you're not a patron. You're missing out. <laughs> yeah, here we are yeah, rabbit trailing on that too. Yeah, go sign up for that. <laughs> the link in the description of the episode and. Um, I think we can go ahead and get started. Yes, I think we should get started because I know that, Lucas, you have a lot to talk about because this is your favorite band. Yes, it is. This is one of those bands where you said if we were going to start doing third volumes, fourth volume, fifth volumes, I feel like this would be the first one to... uh, Really? not, not Not only is it the first episode, because I know how much Lucas loves Queen, I feel like it's it will probably be the the first volume three and if we get into volume fours it'll be the first volume four very it's very possible so um ethan i don't know if uh if you've been around when we've talked about this but i've described this on many past episodes about what i call my four pillars 
and those are the uh, the four my four favorite groups that contain each of my favorite um, person on an instrument. And I call them the four pillars because I can never settle on what my fifth is. It's always changing. <laughs> I always talk about in episodes about this is a potential fifth spot. Uh, the Beatles, Coldplay, Metallica. Um, so is it four pillars like the your your I guess five favorite like you want five pillars but you only have four favorite bands and you're looking for the there, there's only there's only four that I can at all times definitively say that these are the my favorite four groups. Well, you, it, you have it, not it, told me that. I, I'm I'm interested. Who are the four? So Queen obviously is one of them, with Freddie Mercury being my all time favorite vocalist and front man. Um, we've got Pink Floyd with David Gilmore being my favorite guitar player. We've got Rush with Neil Peart being my favorite drummer. Yeah. And Iron Maiden with Steve Harris being my favorite bass player. Now, I can understand Rush being your favorite drummer. Um, and uh, Pink Floyd with David Gilmore is a little bit far-fetched because that seems kind of like a super group now. Looking back, Pink Floyd. Um, and what do you mean a super group? Uh, well, it's just like every... Uh, not everyone, but every every big personality in Pink Floyd is a big personality. Oh yeah, like transcends the band, like the mm-hmm. like the Beatles. Whereas it wasn't like Chicken Foot, where they got a bunch of really talented people and put them together. But it's just it became a super group. Uh, yeah, and Iron Maiden to an extent is the same way. They're just all very very talented, but they're not really kind of their own careers. But Queen is very different in that when you when you watch queen live it's almost like it's you're not even at a queen concert you're at like the freddie mercury show and there's just three other guys that's the kind of vibe that i get hmm I man know, i don't know if it's i have a little bit of a disagreement loud, with that. but like he really carries the show is what i'm trying to say oh yeah not, i mean not that in the a- rest of the guys don't belong there but like without freddie like queen would terrible as a live band yeah but i will also say that you take any other of those members out and keep freddie you lose a a much larger part than you would expect well that's true because they're all good compositionalists yeah well and and i think that they they all have their their unique thing that they bring to their stage show so by the way um for audiences listening we're going to be focusing on queen as a live group in this episode um just like we did with our cheap trick episode where we looked at them as a live group we're going to be doing that with queen as well we're going to be talking about um the live music when we get to the song segment part of this episode we're going to be pulling from one of my all-time favorite live performances by any band and um so if you're wanting to hear about the history of the band, the members of the band, their influence, their sound, we're not going to really be talking about that a whole lot in this episode. If you if you want that stuff or need that stuff, that's what our first episode is for. So make sure you go check that out. Um, we're pretty much just going to jump right into the deep end on this episode. So just a little uh, forewarning for listeners. 
So, uh, Grant, you can continue with your thought that oh, you had. I, I can't remember where I was going with, with that. I think <laughs> I, I would probably mostly, I would mostly agree with Grant that in terms of the live show, the way that it's presented, that if, if you took Freddie Mercury out of the, out of the mix, it's a, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's, it's it, it would be more consequential than taking out another member. Like, by yes, far. I do, I do. Agree and even though that. I think that they bring their own flavors to it, and, and and I think if we're talking about them as a studio band or as as a, a, a band with longevity, I think it has more ripple effects whenever you take people out. But I think if we're talking about like, like you can't, you can't. Like if the drummer gets sick, you can you can get a sub and you can get by, and people Whoa. might be a little bit sad. Mm. Whoa! If the drummer Here's gets the thing, sick, though, you, you not you not only lose uh, Roger Taylor's drumming, which I mean, yes, technically it could be replaced, but you're definitely not going to find another drummer that's going to sing all those high harmonies. I, I agree, but, but, but you yeah. can take out Roger Taylor and you get a different drummer. It's like the show will go on. You take out Brian May, and you, Ooh, you lose. You lose. I don't know. I'm saying. I don't know. See, Brian, line. You, you Brian, Brian May line. is the other one. I'm saying that the show would continue, and Freddie Mercury would get up and say, "Hey, Brian May is having some difficulty, but I would like to introduce you this guy." And people would clap, and they'd be a little bit disappointed that Brian May wasn't there, but. You can't. Okay. You can't tell me. Well, that but they Brian did, they... May could come up to the front and say, "Hey, everybody, Freddie's not feeling too great right now. We got this guy." People, but, would but leave. Queen is they touring. Queen is they... touring right now with another. Guy. I mean, that's what they're doing right now. Yeah, but right. It's, it's not. That's what they've been doing the last twenty-five years they since have... his death. Yeah, and they have huge, massive shows. Yeah, but at this Billions point, it's like Queen okay, maybe is. Queen is like, like if you would have done that whenever they were climbing up in their prime, it's yeah. a lot bigger deal than now. Where it's like a lot of bands that were out there. It's like they're and Queen's not on this level, but it's like the casino touring guys, where a couple of members are there and a couple aren't. But you're just going. It's like nostalgic. If you pull that move, I mean, whenever the concert that we're going to be looking at in 1981, you pull that move. People are gonna just be like, "I'm, I'm out. I came to see Freddie Mercury." Yeah, but I'm gonna also argue that Brian May is indispensable. I'm gonna give a couple of points why. First off, there was an instance in their career where Brian May got hepatitis and could not play. The band, instead of replacing him, canceled the whole tour. Mm. Because they felt that they could not tour without him. I mean, he has a unique tone smithing ability that other guitarists just don't. And there's just have. he has a he has a playing that is so unique that he he's one of those few guitar players that doesn't sound like anybody but himself. But at not pretty much all times. But yeah, it's it's not in a you know he can p p use all of these crazy techniques it's just there's a there's a it's part of the queen dna there's the thing that i always say there's 
the reason Queen was able to stay relevant for so long was because they had the ability to be music chameleons to where they were able to be so flexible in the styles and they were able to kind of, you know, adapt to the times because there were always two things that stayed constant. One were the big vocals. You always had those big signature sounding background vocals. And then the other thing is Brian May's guitar. Yeah. His guitar is so signature sounding Mm -hmm. and the way he plays it, it's just, it's, it's part of what makes queen queen. And I think it's the reason why they're still able to go out and do these huge tours without Freddie Mercury is because Brian May is still there. He is, I would say as much of the sound of queen as anything else. Yes. Freddie is the performer and the entertainer, but I think that when you remove Brian May, it just isn't the same. And so, you know, we've seen what Freddie is like without the other guys in the band. His solo career was a titanic, massive failure. It should have been a huge thing. I mean, this is one of the greatest songwriters, vocalists um, of all time. But when he tried to go solo, it failed miserably. There's something about when those four guys are together, even though it seems like Freddie Mercury's talents and um, charisma carries the band. There's so much more of that hidden, unexplainable power about them that is lost as with every member that is removed. So then he, I- may, he may be carrying the band, but there still needs to be a band to carry. Mm-hmm. I, he's, I, he can't be. Me, he is the. Show, he is the. He is the member that takes it all the way up over the top. Absolutely, he's definitely the one that when you remove him, you lose the most. But I guess what my point I'm trying to get across is is that I feel like people will say, "Oh, it's you know, Freddie's the only vital member of the band." And I kind of just wanted to dispel that rumor or that that argument, that way of thinking. The Freddie that we know now, I guess, and this is maybe maybe getting too live specific, but like was was Freddie always the kind of entertainer that we see in the live in Montreal album like even whenever they were uh, not in the big time was 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 he like this much of a a showman kind of guy even on the small stages um first off i'm gonna say that i'm uh we are not going to have the phrase is this too live centric that's exactly what this episode is for (laughs) live centric as you want Um, i'm just curious because some bands it's like they're in the little coffee. I mean, I mean, nowadays it's like little coffee shops, little bars, and it's a lot more toned down. And then once they hit the big time, it's like big time. But mm-hmm. just knowing what I know about Freddie, I'm just curious where it's like, was there like a a moment where like the flip switch or the the switch flipped, <laughs> and uh, and and it was just like 
oh, it's like he's on now, or was he always like that and it just took a while for it to be discovered? No, I mean, obviously, as they got bigger, he got better at it. Yeah. But even when they were small time, he not only had the moves, but he had that audience control. It was said that even in their earliest club gigs, when people didn't know who they were, as soon as he would step on the stage, he would lift his hand and the entire crowd would rise out of their seats. <laughs> that he he still, even in the earliest days, had that star ability. That And he knew it too. Because he would go around all the time before they even made their first album saying that, you know, he's saying, I don't want to be a rock star. I want to be a legend. And he knew that he was going to be. He didn't accept anything else. And so he, in a way, always had. Now, of course, in the early days, it was raw. Um, when you listen to a lot of their early live recordings, like um, the Live at the Rainbow in 74 is a really probably the best live record of their early days. This was on the tour, I believe, of their second record. And there are certain things you hear it and you're just like, he hasn't quite um, dialed it in yet. There's some things he tries with the audience that doesn't completely work. But I would say like it's 75 to 80% already there. And then just as they got bigger and better he got bigger and better. And the reason I wanted to pick the Montreal uh, performance for our songs is that in my opinion, this was when he reached his peak. Mm. Not to say he wasn't at his peak afterward. I would say that from that point on until they stopped performing when he got sick, he was at the top level. So this, you, in your opinion, this was the show where he uh, had ascended to be where he was. I mean, he. I think he had already ascended around that time, but it's the it's where we have the document, the video yeah. documentation to see it. I think that first off, they they had played together so many times that you know he knew exactly what he was doing on stage. He knew exactly how to communicate with the audience. And vocally, he was at his prime at this point. Uh, one of the one of the best live singers ever, because there's a difference between someone that's a great studio singer and a great live singer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've heard it so many times where someone sounds great in the studio and, and then they're live, and you're just like, "Ugh, that studio this, this magic." <laughs> David Lee Roth. I'm looking yeah. at you. So, um, <laughs> no, physically, he was in great shape at that point. Um, he, you know, he had the energy. He had the, he still had that youthful um, power to him. Whereas when you see some of their stuff in the mid 80s, around the time that they stopped touring, you could definitely tell that it was an, it was an older, a bit more um, strategic approach to um, that stage power where he's not as manic and not as just like 
what's going to happen, but a bit more deliberately orchestral. Yeah. Like if you look at him at Live Aid or on the Magic Tour in 86, there's you can it almost feels like he knows every step he's going to take. He knows exactly every note he's going to sing, every hand gesture. Like it just it and not in the sense of it looks like he's going through the motions, but just like he knows exactly how to do this. Yeah. So, and is, so is that a reason why you didn't pick Live Aid? Well, the main reason I didn't pick Live Aid is because it's such a short set and half of the songs on that set we've already done in our first episode. Okay. So I didn't have enough songs to pull from or else I probably would have picked Live Aid. Um, Live Magic is another is probably the other one I would have picked from the his uh live at Wembley which was one of their very last shows they ever did. Um, the only thing is just the sound quality is not as great. Um, there's just the, everything on the Montreal record just sounds so good. Yeah, and, it does. And it looks good too. The video recordings are really high quality. Yeah, it's because it was intended to be a movie. Wow. It wasn't just a live like it wasn't one of those ones it was just meant to be an um an album that just happened to have footage gone along with it this was intended to be released in theaters you know this was this was supposed to be a concert movie and so they it's a professional film crew it's not just you know the film crew that happens to be at the stadiums it's just you know wildly waving the cameras around so was it ever released like that um, it actually got shelved for a very long time. Oh, why? I want to say, I think they weren't happy with it. The they, band. Uh, there was also, there was, that was the point in the band where they really started to have a lot of internal struggles. Oh, right. And, uh, because this didn't get released until like 2011. Oh, Wow. Um, but, the, but but we had the audio or not no. even that. Mm -mm. Wow, this was, this was kind of one of the ones that they dug up from the vault and were just like, "Oh yeah, we've got this. Let's release this." They did that with several of their iconic live performances, like uh, live at the Hollywood Bowl and live in Budapest. Just these ones that they had intended to do stuff with and they just never got around to it mm. for whatever reason <laughs> which I think so, I think that's even more of a testament to like the stuff when we talked about this in our ancient music podcast but it's like if if the live in Montreal albums they watched them and they were like eh, we've done better concerts we just, then we just don't have access to those concerts because they weren't filmed. Yeah. Like, cause that's, you know, that's what happened mm -hmm. where they're like, ah, this live in Montreal, this is like not even close to what I feel was our best concert. Right guys. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they, I could but they're still like amazing concerts in, 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 on any rating scale. Uh -huh. well, that's, that's just the byproduct of, taking you know months and months and months to produce one hour of content yeah. you want it to be 
perfect, right? And and so musicians are very used to that. And so anything that they do, they want it to be just perfect, perfect, perfect. So I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a – I think it's a phenomenal live show. And for me, I, I won't say that it's their best live performance. I think that there's um, – like Live Aid, I think, is probably – one of the greatest achievements by any group in rock history, what they were able to do on that stage. And that's something that um, we'll maybe get a little more into. I want to kind of go through what are the great lot queen live shows. Um, but there's just, there's there the context surrounding live aid makes it so powerful. And then um, them live at Wembley, being one of Freddie's last shows, there's there's no pun intended a magic in the air in that show of something that, especially when you're listening to it in hindsight, knowing that this is literally like the third to last show he ever did live. Knowing that and realizing how incredible he still was, mm-hmm. that he was already suffering from AIDS at that point, although he wouldn't get officially diagnosed until the following year like he already knew that he was suffering he was already having some of the first side effects and and signs but yet he still outperformed everyone else around at that time yeah and so yeah so let's um no, no. Let's also talk about just kind of what else made them a great live group. Because okay. I want to also talk about what the other members of the band brought to the table. Okay. Uh, Live-wise, not much. <laughs> Other than the fact that they're able to perform well live. You know what I'm saying? Like they, Like, they're able to play their instruments and sing and be tight with each other. You know, especially those tight harmonies is very important. Mm-hmm. So there's an incredible, and this is something that more recently I've really started to ear in on. Um, they have an incredible ability to just sense exactly what needs to be played. That's true. And of course, tech, Queen's never been a technical group. They rarely ever dish out you know crazy shredding solos or these fancy drum fills drum grooves Uh, bass is usually always just doing what it needs to do to propel things forward but and this is something i've also really started to appreciate after being in a live group with you grant and just like realizing how tough it is to have a band truly play together mm-hmm. and not Queen, just play through. Uh-huh. Yeah. Queen is one of the best bands I've ever heard play with each other. Yeah. Knowing everyone playing exactly perfectly together, them being able to go off script because they did that a lot of the time. A lot of the sections in their songs would be improvised you know, they they wouldn't say, you know, we're going to solo for this many bars and then go into um, 
into the next part of the song a big re a big pull for going to see queen is you would go try and see them multiple times because you would get something almost completely new every time well and their ability to do that without going off the rails or you know they just they always had a perfect sense of how to play to each other and with each other um the bass always knew the right place to come in um the drums always knew exactly the best way to bring the dynamics up and down um brian may's guitar playing was just he was he had such an an arsenal of different ways of playing something that he just would always surprise you with a, a lick or a different way of playing a riff that was just like, Ooh, that was really interesting. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. And then of course, Freddie just being able to, you know, riff and banter along and, um, you know, take advantage of these spontaneous moments to kind of have some, some crowd participation and I think that that's just something that cannot be uh, overlooked with Queen as a live group is just, it's not just they're tight in the fact that, you know, tempo wise, but just they were so dynamically with each other. One of the best I've ever heard from a live group, because it's easy to do that when you're playing the songs the same way over and over again, night after night. But they didn't do that. Hmm. That is something they never have. Like, is there like very little? um, I guess. How how much deviation was there between concerts? So, um, and we'll. I guess I'll spoil a little bit. Like, let's take something like uh, "Keep Yourself Alive." Yes, there's. They play that song wildly different from how it's originally recorded i mean it's almost a brand new song and the way that they would just play around with some of those riffs like the intro or uh the breakdown there was never a set amount of time that they would stay on those they just went to it when they felt it needed to go Sometimes it might be longer. Sometimes it might be shorter. Sometimes Brian May might play it a little different. Um, You know, but they always knew together when to get to the next part. They didn't have any ears of a vocal guy telling them to the verse three, four, or, you know, anything, or like someone with, um, you know, uh, an in ears mic saying okay guys come on let's go to the next part here we go like they just they just had to feel each other hmm. that's that, that is, i don't think that's something you can learn no you know, that's something that you have to well I, I guess it is something you can learn but it's it's not something you can pick up immediately you have mm-hmm. to know the guys more than in just a musical context like you really have to know the people you're playing music with and also Mm -hmm. know their influences and their styles and the things that they like to do when they're jamming out by themselves and that's something that you get from touring with each other 
for extended periods of time. I mean, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they were that way in the early days. No, but they were far better along than a lot of the other groups of their time, even the established ones. Because they were they kind of pioneered a lot of the modern rock show. How do you mean? So just a lot of the aspects that we use in modern um, in modern rock and roll shows, you know, having a dynamic front man that struts around and interacts with the audience. Freddie Mercury was really one of the first to ever do that. Really? And yeah. And definitely, because I look, I've looked at a lot of old, um, like '60s and early '70s rock and roll concerts. Even the all-time greats like Robert Plant, Mick Jagger, uh, Ian Gillen—they're mostly standing in one spot. Yes, they may have some moves, they may have a lot of charisma, but they are not. They didn't do near the amount of activity that Freddie Mercury did, even in their early days. Hmm. Um, I mean, he really was the first rock front man to um, to make it such a show. And they were ridiculed at first for it because it was just like, who are these ridiculous people? Like the critics hated them. And just thought that they were pretentious, that they were too over the top, they were too campy, that Freddie Mercury was um, just too over the top. The critics are are very usually miss. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're I would say they're wrong more than they're right. Yeah. I think it's so, because critics critics are. Um, and I guess I can't say this about all critics, but the majority of the critic voices are all they can do is compare things to things. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what is winning? And then we compare to that, and it's not holding up a candle. And whenever something this new inserts itself, there's nothing to compare to compare Freddie Mercury to. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's like, well, compared to all the quote-unquote, like, rock greats of the time, you know, this is campy, you know, in comparison. It is a little bit strange, but, like, they had they had a better beat on what was what people liked at that moment than what people would like to have. That's usually yeah. where critics get it wrong, is that they're bad, at, they're bad predictors. Yeah. And I would also say that Again, it's kind of we have this discussion like we did with the Beatles, and we talked about all the things the Beatles invented. To say that someone invented something is usually not true, because usually you can you can always find oh this person technically did it first, but then you give the credit to the person that did it on a large scale. Yep. Like Queen may not have invented crowd participation, but they might as well have. Yeah. Right. They were the first ones to use it in such a big way. They were among the first to realize that the crowd is part of the band. They're not just meant to be sung at, but to be sung with. Yeah. Or, it's the whole 
reason We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions was written. It was the, meant It goes back to, to be, a little bit of what we were talking about in After Hours, which you guys should go listen to, but the um, it's really like taking the whole concept of what a concert is and changing it. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, it's one thing, I mean, I mean, yes, it's one thing to be like, okay, the crowd. Like, how do we get the crowd involved? How do we, how how do I control them? How do I entertain them? How do I get them, in, you know, more ingrained? And, but he's like, I mean, their stage design has like these massive like wings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where he can like, I mean, his reach. And again, I I haven't watched as many concerts from. Uh, these days is you Lucas but like I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised I guess to to learn that like Queen was one of the pioneers of of changing the stage design to be wider because no one else was using that much real estate at the time and probably yeah too I mean because he he'll come out on the runway to the audience Mm -hmm. and move along the runway and and one thing that before we get too carried away Lucas, you talked about like you're gonna start singing in our cover band, and you wanted that broken off mic stand, mm-hmm. and and how Freddie had the broken off mic stand. And at first, I was like, "Oh, it's because you're obsessing over your favorite band, Queen." But no, it's like watching some of the some of the video of him with the with the broken mic stand and the mic. He like does a lot of things with it. You know, he'll hold it out in yeah. the audience, act like it's a guitar, and and. And totally, like it, it's it's an instrument in and of itself, but only exactly. for show. And the showmanship of it that I think, like, you can make without any kinds of, you know, dancers or anything. I like that because it's still it's still him and it's still his personality, but it's not just his voice anymore. It's like it's mm-hmm. like they're letting you into their existence into their state of musical existence and this is just what it's like to be part of queen that's what i feel like yeah absolutely yeah the the whole reason i mean yes obviously you know having the broken off mic stand would make me feel more like that but at the same time it's like for me because i don't want to just stand and sing I want to be able to move around when you have something to physically have in your hands as a prop, as something that you can do things with when you're not singing to where like, you know, if we go into extended guitar solo, I'm not just standing over to the side, just waiting for my cue to come back on. I have something that I can engage with the audience with or engage with you guys with. Right. Well, And that then begs the question is, did it ever become like a crutch to absolutely not it okay because that seems like it's something that it would be you know it kind of like the whole um argument of i need like a guitar in front of me so i feel like i'm not exposed to the audience you know i need something in my hands so i feel safe no right because he he just because he knew how to use it and it also was something that the audience could connect with and 
in my opinion, looking at a lot of the great front men, they usually have something like that. Um, you know, you look at Steven Tyler, he always sings with a mic right. stand. Um, and he and, and it's because he can use it for so many different things. It it adds to the level of showmanship. And that's something that you lose in the thrash world where most of the singers are also playing an instrument. And so it's mm-hmm. not something that I I'm used to. And so when when I see videos of Freddie, I'm like, what in the world is he doing? It's like Lars doing the drum run or something. Because, <laughs> well, because it's like he Which the drum run is pretty great. The drum run is pretty great. But that's like, you know, when you're tied down to an instrument and having to play a part all the time, instead of just being able to just kind of jam out without producing any unwanted noises, it opens up that freedom for you to just mm. be able to enjoy the music. And I think that's something that the audience connected with. It's something that I connected with watching it 30 years later. So, yeah, 30 plus probably. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, another thing that they really, and this is not as much uh, about how they contributed to the act of playing live, but this was something when I learned about it, I thought that this was mind blowing that, um, they were the first band to discover that South America loves rock and roll. Really? Hmm. They did the first ever major South American tour where like 200,000 people came and filled soccer stadiums. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I, knew, I like, knew South America loved rock and roll, but wow. Yeah. Queen was the first one. Okay. Mm-hmm. When they came down in the early '80s, they you know they were pretty much the reason we have Rock and Rio and you know all of these you know you look at every big rock and heavy metal band and you look at their tour schedule they always have these long extended periods in South America yeah and that's always where they have their biggest crowds that's where Rush played to their biggest ever crowd it's where Iron Maiden played to their biggest ever crowd. Um, it's actually not where Queen played to their biggest. They actually played their biggest in London. But they are from. I mean, yeah, yeah. But some of some of their biggest ones, they played. I think at one point they played to like three hundred and fifty thousand people at one South American show. Gosh, that is. It was literally a sea of people. Wow. That is a lot of people. Yeah. That hitting. I'd be I would be lucky if I considered or I would consider myself lucky if I played to three hundred thousand people total. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, oh my goodness. How did they even see? That must have been like a outdoor festival like download or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's them? it was completely outdoors. Was it just them, or were there other bands? No, it was just them. Wow. They they hit a point fairly early in their career where they did not bring opening acts because they would play for two and a half, almost three hours. I mean, that's the way to do it, you know? 
Gosh, it's so mm-hmm. hard. And because just no one, no one else can could handle that those kinds of crowds. Like once they hit, like the early to mid eighties, they pretty much exclusively played arenas. That's and just you know these these mind-boggling numbers of people per show that like for most opening bands that's going to be too intimidating <laughs> they're not going to have the ability to pull it off and plus also just queen just you know they want to just have the evening be about them which is very typical of them but they they can do that <laughs> like they don't need they don't need anyone else to help fill the time <laughs> no. Yeah, that's uh-uh. true. They don't. Yeah, they're they're definitely not running out of things to do. Nope. Yeah, it seems like the, every song for them is different, and I think you get that feeling when you listen to their album music because you know they'll bring in different instruments and different styles and different ways of mixing and whatever like for example crazy little thing called love the way it's mixed even though the instruments are entirely the same it's just the way it's mixed and the feel is completely different and you don't have that ability to do that live you have Uh, to rely on playing differently and performance and all of those things and you can't layer guitar after guitar after guitar. You have to be the only guitar. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really, really daunting, I think, for any live band. But Brian May pulls it off, at least in the guitar world. It, it's you, you don't get the illusion that there's something missing. You mm-hmm. feel like everything that was on the album, every guitar, part, fill, lick, whatever is right there in front of you yes even though in reality there is something missing but you you're it you don't get that feeling it's and that's that's something about brian may as well that you know you don't get for example i i think of like the very last lead line of injustice for all there's like four guitars there and when they play it live there's just something missing Mm mm-hmm you don't get that with Brian May. I I I, I don't know other, any other way to say it, so I'm just going to stop talking. Yeah, you actually <laughs> lead me beautifully into my next point. Okay, which is their ability, their genius ability to convert their songs into yeah. being more effective in a live experience. Yeah. So this is an age when you cannot play the backing tracks. Mm-hmm. It isn't possible. You know, they you first off, you don't have the in ears, you don't have click tracks when you're playing back in those days. You know, you can only play what you physically have with you, and that's it. Right. So, you know, and you look at Queen in the studio, and they're a band that it seemingly cannot exist without backing tracks because of how layered and how nuanced everything is. I mean, millions of vocals, millions of guitars. Yeah. And just, and all of this crazy studio trickery on just about every song they made Mm -hmm. that 
it, they could very easily fall flat on their face trying to sound like the album. They know that they can't. And so they lean into these songs in a very different way intentionally. Yeah. And I think they are were so smart about it. Not only knowing changing it for necessity, but changing it because they knew how songs should be when you're playing to large groups of people. Mm-hmm. They knew how to always make it interesting. They knew how to always make it to where the crowd was a part of it. Um, and that's something that specifically in our song list, I chose some songs that that show so well how they wildly divert from the way that it's originally played and recorded. And I just think that they were, they were such geniuses about it. And also um, Freddie Mercury has said that he didn't want people to come see them just to hear the record. He felt like the, they were wasting their money. It's just like, if you're going to come hear exactly what's on the record, save your money and go listen to the record. Yeah. When you come see us, you're going to hear something you've never heard before. That's good. I like it when bands do that. <laughs> yeah, like to me, it's always, I mean, yes, it's satisfying when they play a song and it sounds just like the record. But there's also just something so fun about a song comes on, you're just like, okay, what are they going to do with this? Especially when you know the band is consistently hitting these adventurous takes out of the park. Then the excitement builds up whenever you realize what song's about to play. You kind of start going, okay, what are they going to do with this one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. All right. um, I guess before we go into the next segment, let's, uh, let's kind of look at what were the great live queen shows. Okay, let's do that because I know that Rock Montreal is one and Live Aid is another. Mm-hmm. It's about Those it. are definitely two of the best. <laughs> um, okay. And this will kind of almost be a little bit quasi running through their history a little bit. And all of these are um, concerts that you can either listen or watch to in some form or or other. So listeners make sure I wouldn't say make sure but if you really want to if you're curious you know these aren't just ones that on paper they're saying this is one of their greatest concerts you know they're on YouTube or they're on Spotify where you can listen to them I would highly recommend it even if you just listen to bits and pieces just to get an idea of how their sound evolved over time Um, so to me the first great Queen concert was Live at the Rainbow this is where this is the best way to listen to Young Queen because this was just after two records. Um, they really hadn't had any big hits yet at this point, so there's no um, there's no binding of them to play a lot of classics. That that wasn't yeah. the uh, show with um, uh, where they all sing the. Um... You know what I'm talking about? I'm I can't remember. It's the last song of our set. 
Did that show? Love of My Life? Love of My Life. Thank you. No, they hadn't recorded that song yet. Okay. I just remember that being a big deal. Mm-hmm. I knew it had something to do with the love. Okay, anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, and it's really cool because when you listen to Queen's first two records, they're almost kind of like a bit of precursors to heavy metal. Mm. That's, they're two very heavy records. And the live album really represents that heaviness that they had. Um, Brian May does a lot of extended guitar breaks and solos throughout that live record. And they also have a lot of just extended improvised jams because obviously they only have two albums of material, but they still play for, you know, an hour and a half. Yeah. And so that is a really interesting one. If you kind of want to hear the beginnings of Queen and you can still see queen in there but it's a very different perspective then i would say the next one would be their live at hyde park performance which is the concert that they did right after bohemian rhapsody hit big and it was kind of their first big mega show it was a free concert and because of that there was like two hundred thousand people there (laughs) it was in london um, Freddie Mercury describes it as welcome to our picnic by the serpentine and this is Queen kind of now you can see them learning how to be that next level type of act you can still see a lot of the young um, hard rock elements of them in there but you can also start to really see that theatrical campsite coming through. Mm-hmm. And they actually debut a lot of songs that at the time hadn't been released yet because they were working on the follow-up uh, Day at the Races. So they were playing versions of Tie Your Mother Down and You Take My Breath Away for the first time live, which is a really cool experience. It's almost like hearing a demo because they hadn't even really recorded them yet. They were kind of still in the process of writing them, but they decided to play them at this show. And then I would say the next great one to listen to would be Live at Montreal in 81, um, which we're going to talk about in detail here. Then Live Aid would be the next one. Live Aid just... Um, is such a monumental achievement by any group. The have you have either of you guys seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody? Not I have seen snippets. So when Live Aid happened in 1985, do you guys you guys know what Live Aid is, right? Kind of what what that festival was. What I it meant. think I do, but pretend I don't, and explain it to me. So Live Aid was a charity concert. It was the biggest one ever put on to that time. I would say that as far as music festivals go, Woodstock is the only one that is as musically significant, which I would say Woodstock is slightly more musically significant just because it's such a slice of that culture at that time. Mm -hmm. But I would say Live Aid is second. Absolutely. 
um, it was a charity concert meant to raise money to help end starvation in Africa. So all the proceeds that went to it, you know, bands didn't make any money off of it. Just literally everything went to this charity. And it was performed simultaneously in two continents. So you had the, the London show going on. And at the same time, you had the Philadelphia show going on. And so all of the big European acts came and played at the London show and all the big American acts played at the American show. And if you're Phil Collins, you did both of them. (laughs) Because Phil Collins played drums for a briefly reunited Led Zeppelin, then got on the plane and rushed over to Philadelphia as fast as he can to do a solo performance. Wow. What a guy. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely do an episode on Phil. So then, so then how did how did that work with having two different concerts? Like, did you just have to choose which one to go to and just never see the other one? No, so they were also both televised. Okay, so so if you didn't uh, like the band that was on right now outside, you could just go watch the other one. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you're going to miss between the two. But and and obviously, you know, there's not going to be people that are like, hmm, if I'm living in America, I think I'd rather go fly over to England and and see the other group. I mean, you're pretty much going to see wherever you're closest to. Right. Um, For the but it was like it, on the same calendar day. I believe so. I don't think they happened at the exact same time. Like it was like when the London shows were during the day and Philadelphia was at night. So, I believe so, is how so it he was able to get that little time change. Oh. Uh-huh. Because there's yeah. time zones to worry about, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That probably worked to his yeah. advantage because he probably left. But, a, left but apparently he cut as close as you can cut it. I mean, you're flying across the world? Yeah. yeah. And you're making, flying, you're flying, making it you know. for a, your night concert? How many six <laughs> six hours six hours ahead, six hours behind? It's like a real life version of Rock and Roller Coaster from Disney. Yeah. It, yeah. So yeah, England England is like seven eight hours ahead from Philadelphia, something like that. Don't at me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a huge ordeal, and it, it because it was one of the first um shows ever to be satellite broadcast satellite tv was a very new thing at that point they want to say that there are maybe about 1.7 billion people all over the world that watched the live aid shows that's ridiculous yeah so it was the biggest viewing audience in history at that point of any rock concert at that point you mean there's been a bigger one I'm sh- well. Yeah, I mean, you have all of the stuff that's put on TV now. It's it's likely that that has been. I mean, it may still could be. I actually don't know the numbers on that, but it definitely was at the time. So, at that point in their career, Queen was actually on the downturn, mm. and they were considered, you know, the '70s were your time. 
you know, you're the old guys now. You're not yet at the legendary status that, say, like Paul McCartney would be at at that point or David Bowie, where, yes, you're past your prime, but we're still going to, you know, consider you one of the greats. Queen was at that point to where their legacy hadn't really been set in stone yet. Because just that that period of 82 to 84 was such a bad time for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Live Aid was kind of the performance that nobody saw coming. It's the... Everyone had kind of considered them down and out. You know, they... A lot of the young bands that were really getting a lot of the headlines, you know, that was U2's big star-making performance was Live Aid. Um, you had bands like Duran Duran and Status Quo and Spando Ballet that were kind of the big up-and-coming artists of 1985. You uh, You had the big reunions like Led Zeppelin getting back together. With Phil Collins playing drums, wow. you had Black Sabbath with Ozzy up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just everyone's mind was on just about everything except Queen. You know, Paul McCartney was there, David Bowie was there, Elton John was there. And then all of a sudden Queen comes in and completely steals the show from all of them. <laughs> like kind yeah, of nowhere. Yeah, because they only have 20 minutes to play because they have so many artists to get through. And so, you know, a lot of those bands use their 20 minutes very poorly. You know, like as good as U2's performance was, they only played two songs because they chose to do one of their songs for 15 minutes. And they had to cut their third song. Yeah, uh, I remember you talking about that in the U2 episode and how that would have been a great breakout performance for U2 had it not been for Queen. Yeah, I mean, it still was. I would say that if anyone else came away the winner from Live Aid that Queen didn't steal all their glory from, it would have been U2. They were, they were, I guess you could say they were the silver medalists of Live Aid. Even though they played for 15 minutes for one song. Uh huh. It was mainly because Bono got to show how charismatic of a live performer he was. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I have an update he, on the uh, Live Aid uh, statistics for viewership. So it was 1.9 billion people estimated uh, audience. The only <laughs> okay. the only live concert that it, that beat it was Live Eight. Oh yeah, but it only what... beat it because this was two billion. Yeah, well, Live Aid is significant because that's when the classic lineup of Pink Floyd played for the very last time. Live Eight. Mm-hmm. That was in two thousand five, I think. Yep. So, but Live Aid would still have a higher percentage of world population. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, in my mind. <laughs> The ratings were high. Hey, 
<laughs> there are concerts that are viewed more or TV shows that are viewed more than the Beatles original uh, showing on that whatever show. I can't the remember. Ed, the Ed Sullivan show. The Ed Sullivan show. Thank you. There are TV shows with more viewership than that, but not higher percentage. And so that's yeah. why it's such an important that's fair. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Queen completely resurrected their career with that performance. They were considering splitting up. They thought that, you know, it's time to hang it up. And then Live Aid happened, and they were just like, okay, let's let's keep it going. And that's when they went on the Magic Tour of 86, which would prove to be their final tour. And I would say that um, listening to Live in Wembley from 86, that would be the last one that I would say that's a must listen must watch because you're seeing Freddie Mercury in his final performances, but still at the top of his game. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and take a break here. We could talk for like an hour. Yes, we have. I knew we would. And a lot more. Yeah. And we have more. Yes, we do. So make sure you stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six-ish songs on this episode. I'll explain kind of how I'm getting to that number. So uh, stick with us. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Queen as a live band. And now it is time to get to our six songs-ish, six-ish songs for this episode. And I'm not even going to have Lucas explain to you what the six songs mean because you should have listened to at least one episode by now if you're following the rules. Otherwise, you're out of luck. So let's start off, unless, Lucas, you want to do any... Yeah. I'll just I'll just preliminary stuff. I'll just say a reminder that there's a link in the description of the episode oh, that right. takes you to the Spotify <laughs> playlist. Yep. Very important. Yeah. So go so go listen to them, please. If okay. you don't listen to them, you're gonna you're gonna be lost. And oh I would recommend Yeah, you actually will be lost. There's I'm gonna so... recommend watching them as well. There's so yes, that too. There's so much happening. And the transitions between the songs, we'll we'll get to that. Anyway, let's start off with the first song, which is intro. Intro, we will rock you. (laughs) Yes, pretty much that's how I'm afraid I'm going to group that whenever we put it in the episode. It's going to be intro (laughs) slash we will rock you is the first song of the set. Right. You have to start with the live intro. Oh, yeah. Of course. Um, And I noticed that, like, they start cheering way before the band <laughs> they know they know what's <laughs> gonna happen yeah they they have an they have an idea of what they're getting in for and and 
I haven't actually watched this part of the concert, but I'm sure there's like the audio visual aspects going on. It's so like they have like a thunder effect kind of going on. Yeah. So Queen has this very iconic stage prop that they have called the crown, which is a massive light rig that um, is like in a semicircle around the entire stage. Yes. Yeah, and it's multicolored, and it's just, it's at the time, I think it was the biggest lighting rig that any band had. And uh, when the intro is going, the, the whole place goes dark, and those lights start to come on. And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the audience's cue that, you know, oh man, it's about to start. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. I love the like the thunder rumbling and the like the white coming out and like the smoke on the stage. And they, one thing I kind of respect about them is that like some bands try to have like this really like uh, down moment, like inspirational intro that's trying to say something. You know, I love mm-hmm. how they come out with a different version of "We Will Rock You" just and just like they're just shoving it in your face. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's like, hello, we're here. Ready, set, go. Yep. It's just once you start, there's no stopping. And I think so. This is going to be the first example of a song that is radically different yeah. from its original presenting. Um, and we'll, when we do these, we'll talk a little bit about the studio versions just to kind of give a little bit of context. We're mostly going to talk about the live versions. Um, I think that this is such a brilliant way to start the set because it's a declaration where they're describing to the audience what's about to happen to them. They're yeah. going to get rocked. Mm-hmm. And And I will say when I first heard this version, I didn't like it. And the reason is because it was it was performed by Warrant when I first heard it. And really? I was like, oh my gosh, they ruined the song. Yeah, I actually thought that Warrant was like trying to do this on their own. <laughs> and I feel like it's a lot maybe, less cool whenever that's the first time that you hear it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a lot less cool when War I mean, I think Warrant has a great sound. I think like the Cherry Pie album was pretty good. I think it should have been named Uncle Tom's Cabin because I think that song's better, but that's okay. Um, but Warrant is not Queen. As much as great as they may be, they're not Queen. And so when I listened to the Queen version, I had to unlearn listening to somebody else do it and go, "This is Queen." The original writers of the song repurposing this for a live show, and I think that's kind of the spin that was needed on it. And when I heard the studio version that Warrant did. It just it didn't have the same feel. Yeah. Whereas the guitars and the bass and the drums and everything with We Will Rock You was getting everybody all hyped. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the energy that was felt. It wasn't really the energy of the song, really, that carried this for me. It was my vision of what the audience would respond with. Yeah. yeah. I can I can imagine this being uh if you've never been to a Queen show, hearing this and going whoa what's what are they doing and then when he starts 
singing the verse of Wheel Rocky, just going, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah. Like they're what setting. The I, I feel like it's a good. They're setting the expectation where it's like you're. This is different. Like what Fred, what you were saying, Freddie said. Like I, you're not gonna come to our show and hear our album. Mm-hmm. Like you're, I'm gonna come and give you something different. I feel like it's it's a big statement to take. I guess. And I guess I, I don't know enough about them to know how well um, how well We Will Rock You as a song did way back then. But like this is it, like it was, nowadays it it's like song. this is like their song. Like for most yeah. people. Yeah. Um We Will We Are the Champions was the bigger song in its time. Mm-hmm. They were obviously released at the same time. But and you, you're familiar with the concept of when you release singles, you have an A side and a B side, yeah. and you always put the the inferior song on the B side. Yeah. When they released "We Are the Champions," "We Will Rock You" was the B side. Mm-hmm. They definitely viewed "We Are the Champions" as the big song, and it got to number two. So it was a it was a big time song. And We Will Rock You kind of more grew in stature as a live anthem. And, of course, now it's, you know, it's maybe the most recognizable song yeah. of all time. I remember singing that song in kindergarten. Yeah. Just knowing that song by heart. It Like, I don't ever remember learning that song. I don't remember anyone else ever singing that before. I just remember knowing it. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how that happened, but that's the iconic power of Queen. I would say that We Will Rock You is is among the top songs that's known by the largest percentage of the world. You can see in the video, like, there are people that are trying to clap to the 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 iconic We Will Rock You beat to the <laughs> to, to the live version. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. It's like clap, 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 clap. And they're like, this is not working. But that's why I think it's such a, it's a good way for Queen to just be like, hello, we're Queen. We're here. Live is different. Like song number one, ready, set, go. Mm-hmm. I like it. I think it's a ballsy move and I appreciate it. I think that it's also very similar Grant in the way that um, Cheap Trick uses hello there. It's very much a welcome to the audience. Right. It's it's kind of, you know, it's it's not a full-length song. You know, this version's like mm-hmm. a minute and a half to two minutes long. Um, you know, it's this is very much a a an an opening shot before the before the real um salvo begins i would say that the next song really is that hello there yeah even Uh more so because it it, that's even though i I don't think that the lyrical content was originally meant to mean a live performance it still is able to be spun that way and so actually it is We'll go ahead and officially say we're yeah. in the next song, which okay. is Let Me Entertain You. Yeah, so be- because of the fact that We Will Rock You is like one of their big songs, it's kind of like, oh, they play this to kind of warm everybody up. And then mm-hmm. you know, uh, Freddie says something like, are you all ready to get crazy? You know, let's do it. And then, mm-hmm. And then they start 
the hello there or ladies and gentlemen i'd like to say hello or whatever yeah whatever the line uh, is <laughs> ladies and gentlemen i would like to say hello are you ready for some entertainment are you ready for a show right exactly that's that's how i feel about it whereas we will rock you is kind of the the wordless like hype music mm-hmm. but now it's like we're introducing ourselves we're going to jam together, including the band and the audience. Yes. So um, this song represents the kinds of songs in this set that are songs of theirs that were much more popular as live songs than they were as studio songs. There are certain songs in their discography that are not necessarily big radio hits or ones that you'll find on their greatest hits, but they were played at just about every single live show. And they were always songs that the fans expected and anticipated that they were excited for. And let me entertain you as a song that I'm pretty sure when they wrote it, they just put it on an album as an excuse to be able to play it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like this song was written to be one of their big live numbers. And we'll talk about a couple of other songs on the set that also um, serve that purpose. Now um, the, you mentioned that it is better live than on the record. Do they perform it different? Well, it's a lot slower on the record. Oh, really? yeah, it's you know the the live version is bum 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 bum, and on the studio it's probably bum 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 ba da da dum da 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 dum da da dum. That just sucks the life out of it. Weird. Yeah, I mean it's 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 serviceable on the studio version, but it is it is a lot better live. And we get kind of another half song here. I mean, that's actually a full song. That's actually, that's how long, that's how long yeah, it is. They on definitely wrote it for live, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a quick hit, like uh-huh. and it's really good. I think this song, whenever I whenever I listened to it, I was uh, reminded. <coughs> excuse me, I was reminded about. Uh, I was like, man, there's only three instruments happening right now. And, it, mm. and it's like I, like what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing from the stage. I'm just like that is an insane amount of of sound. bigness in sound from from drums, bass, and guitar. Uh huh. So um, let's let's walk through the lyrics of this because the lyrics are so granted. It's not something that's meant to be like a metaphor for something. Okay. The song is literally about playing live, but they do use some very interesting descriptions. And there's a lot of, this is a very self-referential song. They're not just talking about playing live in general. This song is about Queen playing live. And so there's a lot of their history and a lot of stuff specific to them throughout this. Hmm. And so that's those are kind of the interesting things to kind of look at when you're going through the lyrics of this song. Um, like, I guess if you want to call them choruses, you'll, they'll say, uh, we'll give you crazy performance. We'll give you grounds for divorce. Um, just talking, you know, queen shows were kind of known for being very, um, raunchy 
performances, especially in the early days. Mm-hmm. Like on the tour that that song was debuted, it was on the same album as Bicycle Race and Fat Bottom Girls. And so whenever they would play those songs, they would have um, naked women come out on bicycles and and ride around the stage while they were doing those songs. Okay. Wow. And, you know, in later in the Montreal show, he um, he recommends that the uh, uh, the crowd takes off all their clothes and do what they like. Wow. Well, OK, so, uh, so he's pretty much just saying just like, you know, we're going to we're going to give you such an experience that your significant other is going to be shocked when they find out what just happened. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess whenever you have that kind of control over a crowd. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the whole idea of I've come to sell you my body. I can show you some good merchandise. Um, you know, that you can make it think that that's, you know, a sexual thing. But and I guess kind of in a way it is, but it's just the whole idea of just Freddie Mercury's literally giving himself to his audience. Yeah, it's a tongue-in-cheek way to say that, like, they're paying for the show. Uh-huh. He always described himself as a musical prostitute. That's kind of a, a common phrase he would throw around. And so that's kind of a, a nice little reference to that. Um, they talk about electric... Electra and EMI, which were their two record labels. Um, Electra, I believe, was their uh, their European label, and EMI was their American label. Is either that or the other way around? So when they say with Electra and EMI, we'll show you where it's at. Um, just talk, you know, referencing themselves, um, talking about. Um, We'll sing to you in Japanese. They actually do have a song called Teo Toriade where they sing the chorus in Japanese. So there's just lots of little things like that when you comb through. There's just, there's little Easter eggs to themselves. I like Easter eggs. And so those of, those of us that are the, uh, the dedicated die hard queen fans, we look through the lyrics and we're just like, Oh, I see what they're doing. Oh, that's clever. Oh, I get that. So it's kind of got a lot of little, little bits in there. See, these are the things that you just, you wouldn't know if you didn't listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's, that's the whole reason we're here. That's yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's crazy. And then of course it is, very fast like you said we're keeping that energy going for Mm -hmm. that introduction and unless you guys have anything else to say about this song we kind of get the the dynamic lows in the next song Mm -hmm. but without it becoming sad and dull it's like it feeds directly into well of course now we're going to go to a soft piano part it just feels emotionally ready for that point it's well, uh-huh. what, I liked, set. what i liked about the showmanship of it is like you can tell they're kind of moving with purpose but like in the video it's like he goes off to the side he hands his mic stand over he takes a drink of water he's chill 
I think he takes his jacket off, you know. Mm-hmm. He kind of just is taking his sweet time. He sits down at the piano, and it's almost like he's just kind of messing around for a little bit, you know. Like he's getting his fingers ready. Like, like, in, in, again, I don't think he's just, like, taking – I don't think he's taking his time in, like, a bad way. I just feel like he's, like, he's playing the piano, you know? And then he's, like, all mm-hmm. right, now it's time. Let's let's play the song, <laughs> you know? It feels very nonchalant. Yeah, in, and it does a, a good, good way. way of – and it does a good thing of uh, building the suspense. Again, the, the audience yeah. is kind of like – Okay, what song are we about to go into? And you hear as soon as he goes into the ba da da da, the entire crowd recognizes. They're like, "Oh!" I know that's the part that I enjoyed the most, just because you know, if you're a musical artist, you want your songs to be recognized when you play them. Mm -hmm. And that's like, well, everybody out there is their best friend because they know this song. I've never heard this song before in my life, and. I don't know really why. I mean, it's a great song, but yeah, this is kind of one of their. By the way, we're in play the game now. Yes, we are. Uh, so this is one of their minor hits. This is, is a song that you'll see on some greatest hits, but it's not. You know, it's not at the recognizable level as say, you know, somebody to love, Bohemian Rhapsody, another one bites the dust. But it definitely they released it as a single. It was a minor hit. Um, the album that it was on, the game was the current album at that time, but it was a year after. This was kind of a tour not promoting anything. This was just a let's just go out and play some shows kind of concert. But this song is still fairly fresh in people's minds. Um, this song definitely has more energy to it than the studio version does. But I'm it's one of those things to where both versions are equally great mm-hmm. but they sound completely different. The the studio is very much more of a somber song. Uh, you know, the the harmonies are a lot tighter, um the drums are more restrained. There's a couple of moments like, you know, when they do the everybody play the game uh, and then the guitars come in. That's big in the original version, mm-hmm. but they you know the choruses are much more restrained. The um, the part when he goes the my game of love has just begun. That's he sings that falsetto in the original. Um, it's very very different sounding, but you know it's not one of those ones like with Let Me Entertain You where you're like the live version is absolutely better. Yeah, this is just a cool thing where you just have two kind of similar but pretty different versions that are both equally cool for different ways um i think that if they tried to play that song like the studio it wouldn't have worked this is a a, in my opinion a great conversion of just taking little details of the song and both of these songs, I think this is just, you know, a cool representation of they were able to transform the song to what it needed to be for live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like a, it does feel like a good kind of, we, I mean, we just, I mean, just blitzed them. And now we're back, to the, we're at the piano, a little bit of a change of, 
like Freddie Mercury's not like running around the stage anymore. Every everything's kind of starting to settle. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time where Freddie really starts to show off uh, vocally, where he's doing these amazing, hitting these amazing notes, doing these great runs. It's not the rock and roll singing that the first two songs had. Now he's really kind of, it's almost like his, his voice is really warming up and now he's just going to start showing everyone why he's the (laughs) the best singer of time. Yeah. I definitely did get that feel. And especially in the intro, it's really weird because he'll sing something really low and then he'll sing something really loud. And that's something that I've kind of, you know, in in learning how to sing better, you you, you want to train yourself against doing that. But mm-hmm. the fact that he embraces it, and like he's Freddie Mercury, he can do whatever he wants. But the fact that he embraces that was a little counterintuitive. Yeah, but it felt right. And yeah, so it's interesting because he, when he plays live, he actually rarely ever uses falsetto. For anything, well, falsetto and it's, doesn't play well with the live mic. Yes, <laughs> and so anything that, like, originally play the game has so much fault. It's almost an exclusively falsetto sung song, and so the vocal I think is one of the biggest mm-hmm. differences too. Of just he's he's given it such a different dynamic. Yeah, it carries a, it, it. It gives the song a lot more energy. Hmm. So, um, is there anything else you guys wanted to add about this? Let's get much. to my favorite song of the set. Oh, I think my right. question is in terms of set building. So, on the live we we make a big skip so i'm i'm interested in why you picked uh keep yourself alive for the next song so the next song in the concert is somebody to love which we already featured on Mm -hmm. our first episode although i mean somebody to love is already among the best songs written by anybody (laughs) i really wanted to put the live version in it but i'm not at the point are duplicating songs but if you haven't go listen to the live version from montreal of somebody to love i i think it might be the single best song they've ever done live i mean this is the point again so he's he's still at the piano and his voice is really starting to 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 push up and on somebody to love he like goes to this alien level of just like how does someone do this it's so good so we actually um we actually jump forward very far into the show here we actually jump past the halfway point for this song um i wanted to have another song that's a song that's much more famous for its live versions than it is for its studio versions and something that kind of shows like their their jamminess and their looseness, mm-hmm. because this song is very very different from the original. Mm-hmm. 
Like that whole intro is not part of the song originally. That whole the, intro is what really makes it. Mm-hmm. Like the, the on the studio, the song starts with the bum and that that and that bum 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 bass line. Uh huh. Yeah, it's it grooves so good. Oh my goodness! Yeah, they could just do that intro for like three hours, and I would consider that sponsor. And the the tone on the bass is good too. For that time, no, oh yeah, John Deacon always had the best sound to his bass. Yeah, I mean there is a lot of mids to it, but you're you're playing live, so you need something to help it stand out. Mm-hmm. But it, and and they're all kind, they are kind of jamming with each other, and it's it's really cool because it's when stuff like this happens, Freddie Mercury doesn't just disappear. He's always like doing these little you know a little bit louder, little bit louder. Yeah. And just kind of, you know, he's he's not just standing on the side. I'm just going to let the instrumentalists be part of this. Right. He kind of, well, he's able to be a part of it without overtaking it. That's that's true. That's true too. But he cuts out just enough towards the end where you kind of are waiting for him to come in. It's like yeah. where'd Freddie go? Right. And then he comes in with the keep yourself alive, just at the right point. It's like as if the rest of the band expected it, but I didn't. I yeah I've heard this song before but I haven't heard this version and so when he said that I was like oh that's what we're doing here and so mm-hmm. I can imagine that the audience probably felt the same way yeah um so keep yourself alive was actually the first song on their very first album wow so you know it's it's a song that they've had for a long time it was a song that they Tried to release as a single, didn't even chart, but it's one of it's in among the top songs that they've played live more than any other song because it just it fit yeah, it their live. It feel it fits their live performance so well. Um, like, and then there's that that break in the middle after the first chorus where they kind of go back to the just the kick drum that bat out. Bow. that's also not part of the original song as well that's another part that they just extended just to kind of you know, have some some live groove to it and then the other interesting thing being that um, when the drum solo comes in there's still two more or three more choruses on the original version of it yeah they cut they um, you know but I think that it's a, a a good decision for them to not put those parts because I can see those parts not working as well live because they're putting more of their focus on the jammy parts of the song. And so to just kind of end it with the drum solo, yeah. I think it's pretty it's unexpected, but it works. Yep, I agree. I think whenever whenever they whenever they go to the drum solo, I, I you're you're ready for the next thing like like it's like that was fun and then it is an an unexpected turn with the drum solo which is pretty good it was a pretty good drum solo. so i'm so i'm framing this song as keep yourself alive slash drum and timpani solo 
So this will be one song technically. So this is all song four right now. The way in, I'm looking at it in my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's... let's um, Ethan, I'll kind of let you, since you're a drummer, kind of... Like what you're you not think a about drummer, Mr. Cover. So, yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, oh, man. I don't want to, like, bore anybody with, like, drum history. But it's like... Go ahead. Go ahead. That's what this... This style of drum solo, like, was so like common. Like, like this was like the quintessential drum solo. Like, was this one? You know, like whenever someone says drum solo from the from the eight from the seventies, eighties, like even whenever you're talking about like other styles of music, they all end up sounding. Um, more or less like this, you know, especially in rock mm-hmm. where it's like keeping that like kick drum going on like eighth notes, you know, while you just kind of like like let your hands do whatever melodic thing that you want. Uh huh. I mean, but one thing that I love about this is that like there's a pacing to it that not a lot of, a lot of other drum solos had. If that makes any sense. Yeah, so he's going at it, and it's like. You can tell that he's a. You can tell if drummers are good musicians by the way that they structure their solos because even though there's like not a whole lot of like tonality to the drums, you can still pace a drum solo and and orchestrate a drum solo to have like parts that flow so it doesn't just sound like one monotonous big group of hitting things, you know. Kind of like mm-hmm. what he AKA, does AKA drum solos from the sixties. <laughs> Do what? AKA drum solos from the sixties. Yeah, it's it's like drum solos from the sixties were just a, a mesh. And then yeah. once we started getting to the seventies and eighties, it evolved a little bit to be more musical. And now now that the internet's out, like there's there's so many different kinds of of styles of drum soloing that you could do that you know it's it's just the 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 floodgates of of drum knowledge have opened like so much in the past 15 years um but i love the timpani thing because like i did not see it like whenever i was watching through like i i see him get up like it's like drum solo's over and it's like he's rushing off somewhere and i'm like where are you going buddy you know because there's not like a second <laughs> drum kit you know yeah. But lo and behold, in a way, up. there is. And these lights fade up on them. I'm like, there's timpanis over there. And then that adds a whole nother. I think, again, it's a great live decision because, like, technically, you like don't need a timpani in your live rock show. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you just don't, especially going into a guitar solo. You know. But but yeah. you do it because it's entertaining and it's alive and most people probably hadn't seen a timpani played on a rock show before and it's good, you know. Yeah, it's and it's definitely not played by someone that just sees timpani as another drum. Yeah, because it's actually there's a lot of melodic components yeah. to the timpani. I um when I was a music teacher, I had to at at Lincoln. I had to be a judge for Allstate Jazz, 
and I had to be one of the blind judges that just sits behind a wall and just you hear someone come in and you grade them. Yeah. And I had to judge the timpani pieces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're actually playing sheet music of different tones yep. to hit. It's not just, you know, like playing the different rhythms, yep. you know, make sure that they're playing quarter notes, half notes, you know. So, and I heard all, they all, pretty much all of them struggled with it. <laughs> and to to see and hear Roger Taylor play the timpani so well for it not just being a series of the way you would play toms, yeah, I think is really impressive. It does give a, a different melodic take because you can, so for those of you that don't know, whenever you play the drums... Uh, all of your drums are like tuned, tuned like a certain way, and and drums are not. It's not e- very easy to pick a note for drums to be. It's it's like a lot of trial and error, especially at this time. It's not. It wasn't like guitar where it's like you just turn a knob and then the string is a different note. Drums are, are so drums are pretty much set in stone. Timpanies, uh, they increase and decrease in pitch, like with like a pedal. So if you press down on the pedal, uh, it like puts more air pressure or something. I don't really know exactly how how companies work, but it, <laughs> it makes the pitch of the drum higher by tightening something or adding more pressure somewhere. And so you get a lot more options whenever it comes to like tuning uh, and, and expression of of notes on the timpani. And I thought he did. A, I mean, he he had two he had two drums. And I thought he just worked it really well. I thought it was a fun live element. And he gets to move out of... I think it just is another shock and awe moment for the audience because the drummer gets up and they're like, what? You know? (laughs) And then he goes and plays timpanis. And I think people, they liked it. It was a good move. Good live move. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Do you have anything you want to say, Grant, about maybe on either Keep Yourself Alive or the Drum and Timpani solo? I do not, other than the fact that it it leads well into our next song. Yes. It's almost like there is no drum solo. It's just <laughs> kind of like an intro-ish mm-hmm. to me. That's how I felt it was. Uh, yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was going for with this. So we're going to get into what I call the medley of of the set. So we've got three songs here that I'm going to group together as one amalgus thing because you've got one song sandwiched in between another song. Yeah, it's a holy <laughs> wars. Exactly. <laughs> so... The first song of this is Now I'm Here, which is actually only behind Bohemian Rhapsody in the song that they've played the most times live. This is their second most played live song of all time. Wow. And to me, this is up there with the last song on our set for being their greatest live hit as far as a song that... I would say even more so than Let Me Entertain You and Keep Yourself Alive, a song that has so far transcended the original recording. (laughs) 
that it's like this is this is one of I would say only a couple of songs that you cannot leave out of a Queen live set. This is always an expected um, part of the set, and usually is always signals the midpoint of the show. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. The drums are pretty busy on this song too. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just they have a way. Like every band has a sound, and I and I feel like this live sound is so good. Like mm-hmm. it, they have a way of like being so consistent, like with the pacing of their live songs, but also it's like I'm not bored, you know? Like yeah, like it's 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 still the showmanship and the musicianship of it. It's just like, it's just great. It's just great. What's, what's really technically impressive. And this is another thing we're going to introduce that queen kind of brought to live shows is the, um, the delay on the vocals. Yes. So doing this live with no click track means that they've got to make sure that they are sticking yeah, to the tempo that they're playing at. Obviously, you know, when the band comes in, they can do whatever they want. But for those sections, that section where he's in the middle, you know, Brian May and the, and the drums, when they do those punches, you know, it's all together. And um, it's really cool that he's able to use that element to almost do harmonies with himself. Yes. Which is something that when we get to the reprise of this song that he does really, really well. Well, and not necessarily harmonies and, as much as just call and response and messing around. Yeah. There's a, there's one of their songs they do in the studio called the prophet song where he actually, all the band drops out and he does some self harmonizing with that delay to where he's intentionally positioning notes and melodies to where you get these multi-part harmonies, but it's just him singing to a delay track. And uh, it's a song that you should definitely look up. It's really impressive how they do it. Uh, but this is their this is the song where they pull that out for um, for their live show. Uh, so this song was on their third album originally, and it was released as a single. Um, this song is actually also about playing live. This song is actually about the American tour that they canceled because Brian May got hepatitis. Oh. Mm. So they were originally supposed to uh, be the opening band for Mott the Hoople, who at the time was the bigger band because they had a huge song called all the young dudes, which was written by David Bowie. And that was kind of like, they were considered like, this is the next big band and queen is not, not going to be as big as them. (laughs) Well, okay. I've heard of queen and not mop the. Oh yeah. They're one hit one for sure. Whatever. But they actually name check them in the thing down in the city, just hoople and me. Oh, I thought it was just for you and me or something. Well, they they do say that in other parts of the song, but specifically on the second, 
chorus, they say down in the city, just Hoople and me. And so whatever came of you and me, America's young bride to be. So they're pretty much, you know, the song is about their, their dismay of missing their first time to come to America, but saying that now, now I'm here and, you know, we're going to, we're going to really rock you guys this time. That is actually kind of <laughs> more story than I thought. I honestly thought this was a nonsense song. Like, no. I want to ride my bicycle. <laughs> Even I want to ride my bicycle is not a nonsense I, song. You know, it's going to make my <laughs> Queen brain never explode really wrote... if you explain that one. Queen never really wrote nonsense songs. Did they're 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 not usually like incredibly deep. Like it's not, you know, except for you know Bohemian Rhapsody, which nobody knows the answer to. Um, but most of the time, there's usually a pretty intentional message being said, and it's not just let's just put words in because a song needs words. They were kind of never that band, like an opeth where it's just like, I would prefer not to write words, yeah. but because songs usually need to have words, we'll just put some in there. Hmm. Um, so that's, so that's what that song is. It's another song about, you know, playing live in America. Wow. They really like America. And, yeah. <laughs> Even though America didn't really like them very much. Yeah. Unfortunately we do now. Yo, yeah, they do. They're bigger here now than they ever were. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the point of the set where we really, where Brian May gets to really make a statement. Because he gets a great little extended solo in the middle of the song. You know, the song is very guitar driven. Um, a lot of times, you know, he would get his own guitar solo spot, but this song was always used as a platform for Brian May to kind of just yeah go because the solo this is a solo section that it, it's like it goes for whatever amount of time that they feel like yeah. going so so he can just so as long as he wants pretty much and then they just they just they, it's almost like they have unspoken cues of whenever either the drums or the guitar do a certain thing, then you know, okay, now we're going to get to the point where we transition back to that yeah. uh, third chorus. <laughs> Dang. And I don't know how they do it, because it doesn't seem like they give each other a look. It's just like they just know. But every other version I see, they do it for different amounts of time. <laughs> they just, before the show, hey, how long the solo is write it on their just, like thumb yeah I just I don't think that that's how they do it though I think they just <laughs> they just instinctively know okay the solo's over probably I mean that's it. structuring guitar solos like structuring a drum solo I would think is is you have to tell a story with it and once the story's over the story's over and the and the cue being is that the rest of the band is listening and they know when the story's over. Right. Yeah. Just instead of just kind of going off in their own world of you know oh, I'm just gonna play right now. Oh oh crap! I missed the cue. <laughs> yeah. 
and just that's kind of coming back around again on they were so good at just playing with each other they knew they they all instinctively know when brian may's solo was over man they know when to all together go into that build into the last part and then of course we've got to talk about the incredible audience participation moment with freddie yep man this is why i think one of the big reasons why i think he goes down as the greatest frontman of all time is not goat is not because he's just animated it's not just because he has a great voice but because like you said and i think the first section he makes the audience part of the band mm-hmm. and so it's that call and response like i sing something you sing something kind of thing and clap along to the beat and that that kind of thing that gets even the most frozen faces involved you know because it's almost more awkward to not do anything for for Uh the people who are just deathly scared of singing along to a song Mm -hmm. it's he gave you the lyrics right in front of you but yeah um, (laughs) and and i think that that's something that not very many other frontmen can pull off yeah and he just out of the blue just says you know hey oh or whatever and they all know yeah he doesn't explain okay now i'm gonna sing something you're gonna repeat yeah he just does it and they already know (laughs) that that's what you have to do and if they miss it the first time they're definitely gonna get it the second time Mm Hmm. no explanation needed because, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, no other frontmen were doing stuff like that at that time. Freddie Mercury was absolutely pioneering this way of audience participation. Man. Yep. Everyone else was more concerned about looking cool and, you know, singing the song. But, you know, Freddie was just like, okay, we're going to we're going to get you guys in on the action. Right, and and that's something that, as a not frequent concert goer, I still appreciate, even though I haven't actually been involved in the kind of thing that this is. I don't really know mm-hmm. what you even call it. Um, it it it's. I I wish, I'm at a loss for words, but I wish that I would have the charisma as a performer to be able to pull off something like this. It's, in, mm-hmm. it's inspiring is what it is. That's, that's the word. One yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just that other magic. It's a magic. That's- I've been a part of something like that one time before when I went to an Iron Maiden show, they have stuff like that where um, there's certain guitar lines that, as a Maiden fan, you know that you have to um, sing along to. And I got to do that at a Maiden show. And there's there's literally nothing like <laughs> being part of a, a massive crowd sing-along. Oh, like the trooper when he goes? Oh. No, it was the... It's the beginning of Fear of the Dark 
when they do that. The whole crowd is is sings the 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 line for them. Yes, and it's it's an amazing experience. And so Man, this is all there's British just... music. Maybe we should just start our careers <laughs> in Britain. Yeah. They they always knew what was going on. I guess. Um so yeah, the 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 tension builds as they, you know, the band gets bigger and bigger and then we transition into the the meat of our sandwich for this song, which is Dragon Attack. Yeah. Why do you think they decided to put Dragon Attack in the middle here? I think it's because they like it. Well, all right. It's yeah. good enough for me, I guess. And, you know, this is a, another song that just, it it rips so hard live. Yeah. It's got a lot more energy than the... Than the they're good at. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things just like, we really like how this song works live. Um but we don't want to play the whole song, so let's just throw it into the middle here. The audience won't see it coming. We get to play it. And I think it's just all about just continuing to add twists and turns to the set. I think that they really understood that the audience is engaged when they don't know what's going to happen next. It's kind of like one of those, it's like, let's just throw this random deep cut in here that the, the diehard fans love. Yeah. And let's just have a great spontaneous moment where you think the one thing is going to happen and then the other thing happens. And then you think we're just continuing to jam in the song and now we're back into now I'm here. Bet you didn't see that coming. You know, I didn't because I don't actually know this song. And is it actually about a dragon attack? No. That's what I figured. Okay. The the song the song is pretty much about sex. All right. Okay. Good <laughs> describing a, describing a woman as a dragon. Good enough explanation for me. Uh, pretty much. It's about it's about uh, one night rendezvous. I half expected it to be some kind of fantastical story. You know. Just because I base all of my views of Queen off of Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, well, okay, not all. But a significant number of of my lyrical views of Queen on mm-hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody. So I totally expected this to be nonsense. But, okay. No. Like like I, I, I promised you, they really don't write nonsense yeah, lyrics. Yeah, apparently not. So, um, but yeah, this song is meant, even in the studio, it's, it's framed as a jam song. Um, in the studio version, like the drums get a solo, the bass gets a solo, then the guitar gets a solo. There's a vocal breakdown, but it's, it's very much just this, this boogie bluesy riff driven song. But of course, live, they speed up the tempo. They add a lot of crunch and meat to it it's fairly tame in the studio um it's another ones that you can tell when they wrote it they were just like oh this song's gonna be great live 
And I think it goes back to the contrast whenever they go back to the like to get back into now I'm here they do that that way uh, delayed out vocal and they're just kind of messing around like what Grant said they're just kind of like it's a way to change the tone you know again and and keep Mm -hmm. them on their toes and then they just kind of there's like back into now I'm here ready to go boom and it's like (laughs) and Yeah, no, that's that's what I felt like too. It's like uh, they were so tight enough; they knew what was happening enough to when he when he comes in with that line, they were the whole band. They saw it coming from a mile away, but yeah. the audience didn't, and me as a listener, I didn't. And it felt so satisfying for them all to come in at the exact same time, mm-hmm. go right back into now I'm here, and it it did take me a minute to realize oh wait they just sandwiched two songs i didn't really fully understand that until i looked at the song list which i kind of feel bad about mm-hmm. but, but <laughs> it it's they don't still stay very really long. cool to, pull to, off, to give you yeah. some credit they i mean they might be in it for like a minute you know or less. It's, so it's, it's just a. Uh-huh. I, I feel like it's just like a, just a cherry on top. I I think this is. It is. I think this is less of like, I guess technically it's a sandwich, but it's it's now I'm here, and into Dragon Attack, and then a cherry on top with now I'm here again, and 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 trash canning on it. It's really nice. That's true. It's the ABA it's, format. It gives it closure. Yeah. It's the ABA format, but the A is shorter. Yeah. <laughs> and that's usually what you do with an ABA format anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a nice little treat. A nice little cherry on top. But we have more. Yes, we still have one more song. Still have one more which, song. Which, I, which is my favorite song. Same. Really? I referenced this earlier. This is Love of My Life. And it's also a, diff- a, a different version than the album, right? There's a piano. Oh, it's... it's This is a, up there with We Were Rocky with the most dramatic change. Okay, so go through yeah, that this, change. So it's, it is in a drastically different key. Um, the song is normally in C. One is in G. So, because he sings this song in pretty much falsetto the whole time in the studio. And he does soften it because it's just him and guitar. He doesn't have to sing Mm -hmm. over anything. But he's definitely singing a lot lower. But it just, when you put that 12-string guitar in there, it just, it's, it gives it such a warm texture. And this song has was never a hit for them. It was never a single. And somehow, every Queen fan that ever comes to a concert knows every yeah. freaking word to this song. It yeah. just goes back but, to the, the... I think talking about Queen as a live band, in a weird way, it's like talking... It sounds blasphemous to say, but it's like it's like a, talking about a completely different band with completely different hits. Mm-hmm. So it's like it really did. "Love of My Life" is one of my favorite Queen songs, and it's just because it just 
same. You know, it's it's just, but it's be, but it's because like I heard it live and it just struck me. I was just like, wow, yeah. And the studio version is is I I would say almost equally as yeah. good because it's so different. But I think that the live version just edges it out. And I think you picking the live version of this song is a statement to even though this wasn't one of their big songs at this time in 81 mm-hmm. it it was just such a such a live icon to their show you know it's yeah. such a left this turn is... and such a statement to just be like you know here's a here's a 12 string guitar mm-hmm. and I'm we're uh, like cuz Freddie he's not I mean they're just sitting you know yeah, I would say there's only five songs that Queen could not get away without performing live, which is Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously. We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions were always a given. And then Now I'm Here in Love of My Life are the other two. Really? Okay. Like, when they get into the 80s, they stop doing songs like Fat Bottom Girls and Killer Queen and bicycle race and seven seas all of like the most don't stop me now they never played that song live um you know those were songs that they didn't consider to be the essentials for playing live because there was there was almost a different vocabulary for what their live Mm -hmm. essentials were it was always about it was always about the experience for the audience the audience was always part of the band if you can't make the audience part of the band why are you playing the song mm-hmm. and, this, and this, was, this was one of the crowd favorites this is, sure. this, is the, this is the epitome of that because every single one of the 300 million people okay not that many people but <laughs> thousands of people out there tens of thousands of people out there seem to know the words and if you don't, you're going to figure them out pretty quick. They're pretty straightforward, and that's the appeal of it. Yeah. That's why I think all of the live you know, concert-going fans knew it. It wasn't necessarily because you know, it was a great song. It's just because it was such a simple song, and people sometimes like to sing along with simple things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a like, sucker. Like, well, I'm a sucker talking for about fear of the dark. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this song was the original. It's originally written for Freddie's love of his life, which was Mary Austin. Um, I don't know if you guys know the history, kind of between them two. I know there is a history. That's all I know. Yeah. So. Even though Freddie was very famously gay, the greatest love was actually a woman for him. It's who he left everything to when he died. He gave her his estate, all of his money, the rights to his name. She's the only one that knows where his remains are. Um, He was godfather to her children. They were in a romantic relationship in the beginning to mid 70s and then when he 
kind of decided that he was gay. They ended the romantic relationship, but then, um, you know, she kind of adopted more into becoming a mother for him and would literally go on the road with him. She would be with him almost every day. Hmm. And he was the, she was the person that he trusted more than anyone else in the whole world. There were, there were, are, I'm sure, a multitude of things that she, about him that she knows that nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. Sad. Mm-hmm. And she, happy, but it's kind of sad. yeah, she is still alive. Um, but yeah, so that's who the song is written for. And a lot of people assume that all of his love songs are written for guys and that's like, it makes it weird. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say that. It's like, I just, the thing about Queen is that I hear him singing and he's singing about dudes. And I'm just like, no, he's not. First off, he didn't write all the songs. Listener artists, you know, separation as well. You can apply your yeah, and and then also a lot of the, the romantic songs he wrote were for Mary because that's who he felt those romantic feelings for. It was much more of a physical uh, thing with when he was gay. It was more about the, the fleeting experiences where the, the long-term, you know, unconditional love was reserved only for her. Hmm. Well, this is something that I would not have known because of the podcast. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they do explore it in the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. I think that they do a really good job of exploring that relationship. I, I do remember that being a thing. I didn't know they went so far into that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this this song is it's so simple, it's so beautiful. I think I and it felt like a a great somber way to end the set. I agree. Cuz I mean even on the because of the fact that it comes at the exact midway point of the of the show on the CD because it's a double CD, you get that nice fade out. So it like it feels like it's the end even though it's not the actual end of the show so we were only looking at the first half of the show well keep yourself alive was taken from the second half of the show okay um really on in that concert a lot of the big hits are saved for the second half of the show. It's yeah. that's the part of the show that they do Bohemian Rhapsody, another one bites the dust, crazy little thing called love, um, under pressure. We, uh, another, the authentic version of real rock you. And then we are the champions at the end. So it's like the first half of the show, they kind of do more of like the big live songs. I think it keeps it interesting. Cause the the people that are there to see them live, you can still entertain them while they're just hyped to see you, and you can throw in those new, maybe uh, songs for the new people there at the concert that just keep the energy <laughs> up. And then once you hit, uh, I guess, Act 2, you know, you yeah. you just start like That's... throwing them bones and being like, alright. Yeah, yeah really start pulling out all the classics. Yeah. And so because of that, you know, 
a lot of those songs I'm going to use the studio versions when we return to Queen. And so a lot of the first half of the show are those songs where I'm just like, I really want to show the live version of the songs. Yeah. Man. Great set. Great set. Thank you. Again. Great band. Yeah. yeah. Makes it easy when it's a great band. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up this segment. We're going to take a, another small break. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts and then wrap things up. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan, and welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with our uh, conversation about uh, the set list for this week, which was We Will Rock You into Let Me Entertain You into Play the Game into Keep Yourself Alive with a Drum Solo into the Uh, Now I'm here, Dragon Attack, Now I'm Here combo song, ending on Love of My Life. And now we are into final thoughts. So Grant, uh, how has listening to this set changed your thoughts about Queen or live music? Well, first of all, that was quite the mouthful of that. I think, I don't know if it's really changed much necessarily it just made the whole live act idea seem more relevant and more real right it's like i knew that bands you know if they want to compete they need to have a good live show i know what is a good live show and what isn't kind of vaguely um in a very general sense but I never really got the experience of sitting, and this is my own fault, of sitting down and watching a Queen song from a iconic concert where they're known for being good showmen yeah. at that concert. I never got that. Um, and so just the fact that this episode made me do that, it, I'm thankful for that, number one. And number two... I learned a lot about the importance of movement and being sporadic and trying to keep the audience on their toes. It's very important uh, because, you know, people have the attention span of absolutely nothing. Uh, And they did that in the set and i think lucas did that very well in constructing the set even though it wasn't the full concert um that i learned a lot about the set construction of live music as well as how to make something that is otherwise boring even though it's not boring okay i'm not saying that that would possibly maybe be otherwise boring into something that's very interesting for everyone yeah i mm-hmm. there's there, there's a lot i'm still really processing this um <laughs> because we did talk about a lot of different things but i i think i touched at least on everything i want to say <laughs> yeah i agree with you i um i think for me it's um thing number one i think we're 
we're spoiled now because we have access to see so many live shows digitally now. And I think it's a huge blessing. I, I don't, I don't, there's no, uh, no con to that in my eyes at all. But I guess other than the fact that there's so much stuff out there that it's like, you, we almost never, act, we never use that ability. And I think, um, so it's good to watch a live show again, especially, and I don't know when this is airing and this might date the show, but like coronavirus is still a thing. Live concerts are still not really a thing. I love going to live shows um, and I've missed it. And so this has been kind of like a nice, <laughs> like a, like a digital <laughs> concert going experience for me. But I think the, the big thing for me is seeing, um, seeing the the relevance and the history of how i i think obviously queen is a band but how freddie mercury's vision for what a live show could be changed how it changed live shows um because you can see kind of the seed of of um i mean pretty much queen changing the culture of what a crowd even expects out of a good live show. And, and then he raised the expectation for queen and then queen raised the expectation for the every man, like for the, for the concert goer. And I think that made everybody else kind of kick it into high gear. And we talked about live aid and how queen who was kind of on the down just goes, I mean, right neck and neck with you two and just comes out. And I mean, kind of comes back to relevance just because they're like, hello, this is how you do live. Yeah. And, and, and making live important again. And I, and I hope that, um, that someone else can, I guess, carry that torch because right now in terms of live shows, I, I, um, I don't feel, I don't, I don't know what's next for live. And I feel like maybe the mentality is kind of regressing back because we do have tracks and all these things that were, we may be regressing back to bands thinking I need to play my songs just like the album or, or they're not going to want to see me. And I think that someone else should come along and really make a statement and say, um, you know, if you're going to watch me live, it's not going to sound like the album and, and I'm doing it on purpose, not, not on accident. Mm-hmm. And so I, think, I think it's a refreshing take on live, not because, you know, comparatively to what we do now, it's, you know, I mean, but historically where they were, they were pioneers. And I think that the mindset that, that they had about live needs to be revived somehow. And uh, that's something that I'll be on the lookout for. Yeah. Uh, to, to kind of answer the statement you were saying, if they're, and they're not even really a new band anymore, but if there's a modern band that really has brought that approach, it's the Foo Fighters. Um, they on stage proudly declare the fact that they use no tracks, no click and that you are going to hear them make mistakes and be human beings. And I think it's no coincidence that they cover Queen songs at just about every concert that they do. 
and that they were the ones that inducted Queen into the Music Hall of Fame and, and have said that they are the greatest live band of all time. Wow. And they're, they're really kind of carrying that, that spirit of, you know, we're not going to just play how it sounds on the record. We're going to put our own version of it. And watching, when we did our Foo Fighters episode, I always try and watch a live concert as part of my research and watching theirs you get that feeling of you don't know what's going to happen yeah who knows they they could extend this song they could you know all of a sudden launch into another song who knows so uh I, as far as a modern group and again they've been around for almost 25 years yeah. now <laughs> And so it's not like they're really new, but they they have the spirit of live queen. At least maybe some maybe I'm more referencing someone in the in the popular vein, someone that, that, yeah. that has well, has the it, mass it, attention right now. I in I, in that case you can reference happen. Ed Sheeran. Yeah, the Lupo stuff. Yeah. Mm. I don't think that's gonna catch on. I think that's that's his gimmick, and no one else can really copy that without making it look like an Ed Sheeran copy. I, I saw Ed Sheeran whenever I went to see Taylor Swift because he was opening for her. Right, and and I think that's just an unfortunality yeah. of him choosing to do it that way. But it's still nice, and I respect that. Even though I don't like his music, I really respect him yeah, having everything be on stage, even if it is a loop pedal, and everything you hear is something he just played. Yeah, I respect it. Yeah. Okay, now I'll actually get into my final thoughts. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> After that little aside, um, for me, I think I've always loved Queen, and it's really hard for me to ever say that my appreciation for Queen is going to go up. But there is something I feel like after now being at the point of my musical career and journey that I'm in, especially after being in a band like Area 52 brand of just kind of, you know, being in a band that's not just very much like how we play Ethan, you and I at church, where it's you know exactly how it's supposed to sound and it's yep. gonna sound that way, you know, with being in a rock and roll cover band, there's so much more of that creation happening because you're creating the songs to fit yeah. how they need to be for you. It's almost like being back at Dry Gulch Band a little bit. Yep. I feel like now I understand so much more of why Queen was a great live group. I was able to, to, ex- I'm able to understand in rational thoughts why they were so good and going through this process of just kind of critically thinking about that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's increased my appreciation in a way that I didn't think I could still increase. Okay, and so that's that's a, a nice surprise for me. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much all I'm willing to say without again talking for a very very long amount of time. <laughs> 
So, so are we going to have to move to the three pillars and queen? Oh no, there's still one of the four pillars. Queen and the three pillars. It's there. There is a hierarchy in the in the four pillars. <laughs> what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. It's it's just they're the four pillars because I pull something different from each one. Right. But Queen has always sat atop. Pink Floyd is will will always be number two. Rush three. Iron Maiden four. That's how I always will view the ranking. Agree to disagree, but they're your four pillars, so I'm not going to grudge. You don't have to agree with it. That's true. I don't because it's it's your opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Well, with that. Well, yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, you enjoy kind of when we shake it up a little bit and you know talk more about live music. I really like. Yeah. I'm going to start doing this a lot more often. I think it's going to be a a popular go-to for volume twos. Yeah. Uh, I already know which volume two I want to do it for next. I just don't know when I'm going to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's not going to be a band you're going to expect. Oh, okay. Um. So, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure that you guys hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. Send us comments. Let us know what bands you would like for us to cover in the future. And um, make sure to check out the link in the description that takes you to our Spotify playlist. Please listen to these songs. It would be a shame if you listened to such a long episode and did not even listen to the songs. Um, and also there's a link that takes you to our Patreon page, um, become a patron. You're going to get to hear, um, a exclusive segment that we're going to literally record right as soon as we get done with this part. So, uh, make sure you check that out. And, um, check us out on social media. I was trying to think in my mind what comes next. (laughs) Uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook, the uh, usual stuff. Yeah, all all the usual stuff that I have to plug here at the end. And uh, tune us, tune in next time as we talk about probably the the smallest band that we have ever covered on this podcast. But it's a band that um, has always been a favorite of mine. And they are a band that that jumps into that number five spot sometimes. And it's a uh, that band is called Mute Math. So make sure that you tune in next week, nine a.m. Central. That's when our episodes go live. And uh, we'll see you then. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Mm-hmm.